All right, it's Jeff Mayhew, it's John Beatty, it's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? I'm I'm doing all right, Jeff. So, uh, you know, we talk about politics a little bit on the show, we talk about parenting a little bit on the show, and so we've been having a parenting crisis, if you will, because everything is a crisis if it's something top of mind, where uh, one of our children that I will not name nor give a grade to give, you know, for the saving their uh their anonymity but it's having trouble with the spelling tests and uh we got word from the, it's never you know so um i guess i'll get get a little bit so he he goes to the school i work at so i got a call from his teacher friday afternoon and my first thought was like oh i'm sure the internet's down or the printers don't work um but no it was because he didn't do so hot and i'm gonna get a seven out of 27 on a spelling test so um you know it's just it's one of those challenges being a parent you know not every child that learns the same and so we're we're trying different avenues to um, get him to learn that. So we tried him writing his spelling words down a couple of times and that didn't seem to stick. But then this, this afternoon as we we're kind of working, cause he got to redo the retake on Monday. We just tried, well, as you're doing this, say it out loud, spell it with you as you write it. And that seems to have helped some of the words stick better. So we'll, um, you know, as in parenting, you're always experimenting and, and trying to get better, do different things because, you know, every child's different. So how are you doing? I'm good. Um, yeah, I mean, that's hard because you it's hard with kids, especially at a certain age, because you don't know if they're struggling at learning the material or they're just mm -hmm. being a little lazy. Right. Uh, and I would, and you don't I would say for them, this child, it's the latter. It's pro I mean, yeah, as a parent, you know, but you can't know that. Right. And you don't want to make your kid if they are struggling, you don't want to make them feel bad if they are really trying hard. So like it's a really mm -hmm it's a really hard situation as a parent, you know, of, you know, protecting them from themselves <laughs> and, and kind of pushing them up and making them believe and kind of moving forward. But um, yeah, I'm good. We, yesterday was exhausting. We did Haymarket day um, for, for my, for hard hits and the Madisonians. Uh, it was a wonderful Haymarket day was packed. Um, I got to see our good friends at great Maine and true Vi. They were all there um leslie was there she was uh doing the uh the intro on the top of the uh the building there in haymarket and uh i you know i saw jason mirai how do you pronounce his name miares 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 i saw him there and he was walking in the crowd and he was like he was pretty far away from me and i yelled at him and i'm like hey jason we need campaign finance reform and he actually walked over and talked to me. I was very impressed because, you know, I'm just some random dude yelling from a crowd. I wouldn't expect him like <laughs> to walk over. And he came over and he he had seen the banner because I have an uncap. I had to uncap the house banner, so he had seen mm -hmm. that. And then he heard that and he was like, "This guy sounds interesting. Let me go talk to him." And uh, we had a good conversation about campaign finance reform. Uh, we talked about uncapping the house. I told him about how about us and the Madisonians and like how we teach government and stuff. I showed him our pamphlets. He was like. That's awesome. Um, so really nice guy. Uh, it's actually the second time I met him. I met him when Glenn Youngkin and him were running for, uh, when Glenn was running for governor for the first time and he was running for uh, attorney general. Seems like a really smart, uh, articulate, kind person. Um, he gave me his card. He said he wanted to, to know more and to reach out. So I'll reach there out. You. Maybe I can get him. The, I told him, I was like, you know, the Virginia State House has been capped too. We could mm -hmm. fix that. I know he's, a, he's the attorney general, but there's rumors of him running. But he, he could do the legal brief, you know, he could do a legal brief for that. He could say, like, this is legal. Right. You should do it. It's part I mean, of his job. 
I would I would argue that it's unconstitutional to have the house capped. You know, that's just me. I mean, people will disagree with it because it's not technically written in the Constitution. You have to go to intent, and that's where we bring in the courts and all that stuff. But my whole point is just legislators legislate, uncap the house, let's move it on. But um, it was a gorgeous day, but it was exhausting because Oliver had an all-county choir concert, which he had practiced for all week long, so that's extra work for mom and dad driving and drop him off. We had to drop him off Saturday morning at 7.20. Then we had to do Haymarket Day set up starting at 7.30. Haymarket Day from 9 to 4. Oliver had concert mm-hmm. at 2 o'clock, so Vanessa had to leave and go to the concert so she could do that, pick him up. Then we had homecoming afterwards. So literally, we get done. Vanessa leaves, uh, picks up Oliver, comes back, picks up Julia, goes and starts doing hair and makeup. I get home to find my my little girl who you know is now all of a sudden – 14 and looks like an adult and just in makeup and a dress ready for homecoming. And I'm all like teary eyed trying to, you know, manage my, <laughs> manage that moment. So <laughs> I know I'm just kind of rambling here, but um, it's Julia, good Julia tried on the dress Friday night and she came down and I was like, you look very nice. You look beautiful. Da-da. And uh, she walked upstairs and Vanessa asked me, she's, she said, do you like it? I'm like, yeah, it's very nice. And she looked at me and she goes, it doesn't sound like you like it. What's wrong with it? And I'm like, I was like, look, that dress is wonderful. I was like, but you have to understand, she looks like an adult. And she doesn't typically, I mean, she always, I know that she's, I know that she is what she is, right? But when she puts that dress on and she gets all dressed up, you know, and she's she's so excited wearing heels and makeup. She's, you know, she doesn't wear those things. Um, I don't know. I'm just. I was like, I'm having a moment here. You're just going to have to let mm-hmm. me get through it. Otherwise, you're going to see tears, and then everybody's going to be asking me why I'm crying, and I'm just like, I'm struggling at moving from one stage to the next, just like the kids are, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, John, we've got a guest on the show today. Yes, we do. We do. Um, so he he wrote this wonderful book, um, and I'm very excited to have him on. All right, we are joined by James Pethokoukis who wrote this wonderful book. Uh, It's called The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised. Uh, James, thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? Uh, Doing great. Uh, Jeff, thanks a lot. Jeff and John, uh, happy to be here. So what, what got, like, what inspired you to write this? Obviously, like, I've read the book, I kind of get an idea of what I think really inspired you. It sounds like you've been inspired by a lot of things, but I want to share with our audience a little bit. Well, the, uh, I think the, uh, probably the most superficial, uh, inspiration was probably like the authors of a lot of books coming out right now. We had extra time in the summer of 2020, uh, <laughs> not commuting. And I decided, uh, to write a book about some things, uh, I was thinking about sort of the, 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 uh, long-term explanation is that, as a kid, I was a sci-fi buff, and I figured by this point, we would be well on our way to some sort of Star Trek future. Little did I know, I was living through what some economists call the great stagnation and what I call in the book, the great downshift. But sort of the, the middle, the middle reason, really, and I'm not sure I've mentioned this very much in any of the podcasts, and it's in the book, kind of, you know, in the middle somewhere, is that like 2018, 2019, I read a really interesting paper uh, by an economist from Yale who 
wondered who, who looked at two who, who, who made, he made two observations one that starting around 1970 we started spending a lot less or there was a decline in how much the U.S. was spending as a share of our economy on infrastructure you know maybe kind of a, maybe an unremarkable fact and then around the same time we started sort of losing control of our fiscal situation as a country we started getting a lot more debt and just from those two observations he sort of concluded that somewhere in the early 70s, we became a less future-oriented society. If you're, if you're thinking about the future, then you're also kind of putting, putting yourself in the, shoe, the shoes of the future you. So you care about, like, you know, what your fiscal situation will be in the future. And you'll, and, you'll, and you'll make sure your roof is in good shape now so it doesn't collapse later. And his explanation was he didn't have an explanation. <laughs> he ran through a whole bunch of things. He's like, I, I don't even think you can come up with an answer. I'm not sure it's even provable. So I have, uh, that, so, yeah, so I I have an answer for that. Prove it. I, I think I can prove that, but I'll I'll I'll, I'll get to that later. So um, so the whole book, in a way, is kind of an effort to think about is to is to think hard about that and what it, and what it sort of means uh, today. So in the book, I mean, I I, I like this idea of like the the conservative progressive or the progressive conservative is like the way i think about it is like what i want to conserve are my values what i want to progress is my way of life you know and um you kind of break down this this thought process into uh and i think you you take it from a sci-fi book upwinger it like upwinger downwing right um yeah well i don't think it was meant to be a sci-fi book well i, I mean you I, look you at it it feels writer. like a sci-fi book yeah but yeah. so, like, you want to explain to our audience what do you what do you mean by upwing and downwing? Well, listen, if and again, uh, I mean, listen, it's called the conservative futurists. I work at a a, a think tank which is considered a center right think tank. Uh, you know, I call I I I I guess I self-identify as conservative, and I have a certain definition for that. But I guess broadly, if like if you think that humans have these sort of agency and confidence and enough smarts to solve problems so that tomorrow can be like better than today more bountiful fewer people in poverty uh we can be more resilient to big disasters and get richer everybody you know that the people who that the poorest people today someday you know will live like we do today or better if you think all those things are true and technology plays a key role in that then you're an upwinger now you know, some people that may sound like that's everybody, but that's really not everybody. Not everybody thinks that way. Some people think that we, you know, either we can't do it, we shouldn't do it, we don't have the smarts to do it, that we've already tried to do that too much and it's just made the world the worst place. So we should either stop or retreat. Uh, that perhaps uh, the whole world is living too well and we need to live less well and there need to be fewer people on the earth and they need to have a much simpler kind of living. Uh, and you know, if we build more reactors, they're all going to blow up. And why are we going to space when we could be spending that money here on Earth? And gosh, I'm very, and I'm, you know, they're very worried about about trade, and you know, and 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 they're worried that you know, too many people will try to come to the U.S. and do great things with their lives. So uh, those are the downwingers. You can find them on both sides. So you know, the the upwingers are the ones that you can solve problems with working hard and making progress. 
right? And no matter what the problem is, you can find one in the future. You know, you can solve it with- We can innovate. We, that we can innovate, innovate, that innovate, right? may like, be a, a gadget. It may be just a new way of, of thinking, a, a new right. process. Yeah. Right, as opposed to just giving up and be like, hey, there's, there's, no, there's no solutions to our problem. Let's just sit tight and hope that everything will be okay. You know, and it's like, but they're almost more just worried about the potential of the mistakes. There, it's like it's like a downwinger is just afraid to fail, right? And and you, you better can't, safe than sorry, right? Safe than yeah, sorry. yeah. So and John, a lot of it seems to be about the kind of big ideas, right? Sort of like where you, you know, there's the talk about Mars colonization, like that's a big thing that takes a lot of work to get into. But I think part of the talk you were talking about, the sort of the shift in and focus of research and development, has gone much more corporate where it used to be the majority of it was spent on like big dreamy projects by the U S government. And now a lot of that just kind of comes from a corporate research and develop for new products or something. So it's kind of, it's also a much smaller focus because if you're Coca-Cola, you know, you're, you're thinking like, what's the next product we're going to sell? Like what kind of new formula for drink where it is research and development in one sense, but it's very um, more of a, not really, and the, there's kind of this term disruption, but it's not very, very disruptive idea. It's just sort of what's an enhancement of what already exists. I think that's part of that too. It's it's isn't just progress on small it, on small things. Being an upwinger is kind of progress on like big things. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's look. I, I, you know, I use the phrase the great downship, which is got, which is based on the on the really statistical statistical decline in U.S. productivity growth starting in 1973. Uh, which is basically we've been in that kind of much slower uh, mode other than right before, right after uh, the year 2000. So like, uh, so there's this downshift and, and some people will call the period the great stagnation, which isn't completely accurate. I mean, we've had progress, you know, but it's been far more incremental overall, far more incremental than I would like, far more incremental than what people in the, you know, right up until the great downshift thought we were going to have. I mean, it was shocking. It was surprising. We we're still trying to figure it out. And, you know, you mentioned the thing about, you know, what we're spending money on, because, you know, we, we have a lot of business R&D, which we need, but sort of the big basic research, big think R&D, we don't do as much of. So like, you know, we wound down Apollo and the manned space program, but like, and we followed it up with what exactly? I mean, we did things. We still went to space, and there was a war on cancer, but nothing approaching sort of the the all of society effort to solve something massive. You know, whether that was again, whether that was going to be, you know, uh, you know, clean energy, or maybe we should have after Apollo, it should have been, you know, on on uh, on really creating an orbital economy and col and colonization, but we didn't. And there was a there was an absolute retreat. And one of the sort of the mysteries I try to get at in the book is like, why did we accept that? You know, I mean, there, I mean, there are reasons that make growth harder and maybe made tech progress harder, but then we should, why didn't we just like double down, triple down, quadruple down on, on, on making those visions happen? And we, we just didn't. I think so. And I, I said, I think it's provable. And I, um, is this so the theory? So yeah, I think, are you going to give me the theory? I'm going to give you the theory. Question? So um, in 1974, the House kind of readopted uh, Reed's rules, and what this 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 happened right after Watergate, and the basically what happened was trust was lost in government, and Congress became started to become this very partisan thing, um, and you can see it very slowly happen into the 80s. It became more partisan. 
by the time you get to the 90s and Gingrich with Clinton, it's, you know, it's kind of the last hurrah of like part uh you know, working together with Clinton and, and Gingrich before you move on to, you know, our modern day, essentially spoil system where it's whenever the person, you know, whoever wins office, they wipe out all the committees and they put their people on. And that's what Reed's rules allowed it, uh, allowed them to do. Um, and this just over time, the loss of trust, the inability to debate, deliberate in Congress leads to, well, let's just keep with what we've got. Because at the end of the day, maybe one side or the other has a really great idea they want to move forward, but they can't communicate with the other side to bring more people on board to actually move the idea forward. Everything gets stuck in stagnation, right? And that's where we're sitting right now. And so I think that, you know, I, we talk about on this podcast, it's politics and parenting. And I say, parenting shapes the child, government shapes the people, right? So if you have rules in the government that shape a partisan divide where trust is lost, then you're going to lose innovation. You're going to lose things that need big dreams because you need partners in that endeavor. And that's where the modern corporation was born for. Uh, it was born to partner up and create bigger and better things in America. And now it it needs government assistance in a little bit, and we just don't have it. Yeah, I know. I think I, I think that's a I think that's a really interesting idea. I think there certainly have been times where Congress has come together to do to do things, whether it's pass, uh, you know, NAFTA or or or, or opening up uh, the world economy to China, or, or you could you could point to the Reagan tax cuts or the eighty six tax reform. Um, but I, I mean, I don't. I mean, I think that's plausible. I think it's plausible that not having a government that functions enough in a you know somewhat collegial bipartisan steady way uh i think that sure doesn't help and i think and i think if we're waiting for that to sort of happen organically uh i'm sure you're skeptical uh, <laughs> uh it sounds like you're skeptical of that i mean and I'm that's not... why you know it, that's why I think we need some sort of, you know, out, you know, I think outside forces help, whether it's, whether it is, you know, you know, looking at the pandemic and looking at, you know, the, all the shortages and then the war in the Ukraine and thinking like, oh man, the U.S. isn't, the U.S. needs to be more resilient. We need to have, you know, we, did, we need to have like an energy source uh, that we can rely on. Maybe it's nuclear, maybe the, the outside forces not wanting to lose an AI race to China. Uh, you know, maybe it's something else I didn't think of. But I think given what you said, I think that actually works well with the idea that we it would be very helpful to have sort of this outside external thing nudging the two sides to uh, come up uh, uh, with some agreement on to do some important things. Yeah. John, did you, you want to so, get in with yours? Well, you know, we're talking about sort of the there, there's sort of, you mentioned the upwing 1.0 period where there was the progress, and then it kind of comes to the point where uh, that progress stops. And as I was reading this, I was kind of thinking there's sort of a, a material version and a sort of a spiritual version. And the material, you know, you talk about like toilets, like indoor plumbing, like that's a once in a lifetime thing, once in a generational thing where everyone gets that society's great, much better air conditioning. Um, but I think there was also this idea that we were going to fix humanity in all this progress, and that never kind of came to fruition. And so do you think 
maybe the fact that um, humanity wasn't fixed as all this other progress was happening was that was sort of a, a depressing aspect of this that kind of helped shut down the ability to think, well, you know, like, yeah, we got to space, but we still have poverty. You know, you talk about like the spending went towards other programs. And I think a lot of those things are like the, the Great Society kind of growing. Um, I know that that starts in the 50s and stuff, but I think like th that's a big emphasis. Um, there's regulations, environmental regulations are like, well, we got to solve our, our current um, environment. So do you think that sort of our ability to not, you know, to fix our physical world, but at the same time, not kind of fix our human flaws also contributes to that um, sort of downshift? What, you know, what, you know, what, you know, it's interesting that it was really during the period of very rapid growth, very, ra you know, where, you know, people could look around and it seemed like, yeah, the economy's growing and incomes are rising. And, you know, every day, you know, there's a new gadget uh, that, you know, that that's coming forth. Uh, I mean, it was during that period that, you know, we, you know, that we, you know, started focusing on, uh, on civil rights, that we started focusing on, you know, deep poverty in the nation. And, you know, certainly one can say that it is really during those kinds of periods when incomes are rising, that we begin to think harder about the quality of our democracy, that we begin to think harder about, you know, are we are, are we a are we a country that that is tolerant of each other, hopefully more than tolerant of each other. And I think the lack of that kind of progress, certainly since the global, you know, you could say since the global financial crisis, 2007-2009, if we would have had the sort of period of very rapid growth instead of very stagnant growth, would our political situation be different uh, today? And I think to even go, go more to your point, there's no doubt that as countries become richer, they begin to think about the downsides to growth. Uh, and you know, and the environment being a, a a major one, they begin to think more about trade-offs. They think you know, air pollution and all that. And I think that, so. I think that that kind of thing was always going to happen. So, but but let me just finish, is that but but so did we? So were we going to get an environment? So yes, we were going to get an environmental movement that thought hard about those trade-offs. But we did. Was it baked into the cake that we were going to get an environmental movement that was going to say? We've made a terrible mistake here. This is bad that we, you know, we should not be sending off rockets. We should not be have nuclear reactors. We should not be wearing, you know, you know, polyester pants. This is all but a terrible mistake. Do we was it for sure that we we're to get that kind of environmental movement or one that said, hey, uh, let's think about trade-offs, let's clean the air, let's think about, you know, how can technology help us so we can have growth and a cleaner, but that's to a large extent, that's not what we got. Instead of saying, you know, let's kind of shift course, they were saying, let's turn this sucker around and go back. Well, mm -hmm. this so this ties right into the point I was making about the partisanship because the final the the OA crisis. I mean, the Barney uh, the the Frank Dodd uh, legislation that came out of that. Chris Dodd literally like was out as a, as a senator because of how partisan the system had become. So in this idea of like you to be able to do these big projects and to move the country forward, there's got to be like a little bit of like trust and hope. And the reality is in the partisan system, everything was about fear and divide, right? Because, you know, they uh, I just finished this book here by Robert Kreiser, Act uh, Congress, and he's talking about how in both in both sides, both Republicans and Democrats are pressuring Dodd 
and trying to like kind of blow up this bill simply so they could win political points, right? And it's like, if all of your politicians are pointing negative at the other side, there's no positive, what are the people going to think? They're they're going to be scared. They're not going to want to try things new. Like the idea of doing a big project is like, oh, I can't believe in government. Government tells me that the other side is bad all the time and they're government. So I don't like government, you know? And like I said before, it's got to be a little bit of trust to do something big. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's right. And I also think it matters what, what people sort of genuinely believe about the world. It's certainly my experience, you know, dealing with Congress and, and staffers is that no one likes, no one likes to think they're doing the dumb thing. No one wants to think like there's this is there's actually like a really obviously smart path, but I want to sit and advocate for the other. Now maybe you can convince yourself that the smart thing is a dumb thing and the dumb thing is a smart thing. But I think people want to think that they're that what they're doing makes some sort of basic sense. And you know, I one of the uh, uh, I dug up this fantastic thing from 1976 where where Atlantic Richfield, the oil company, had uh, sent out or asked for people to write about their visions of the future. Like, you know, what would the world be like? you know, in, in the year 2076 instead of 1976. And they got a bunch of experts to give their thoughts to. And it was interesting that like, th and this was a group of people across the spectrum and how many of them, including, you know, Nixon, you know, Nixon officials and thought that like, yeah, like there are too many people. We are going to run out of oil and all that. So, I mean, that was, I mean, that was kind of like a bipartisan belief. Uh, you know, Charlton Heston, who, you know, and end up being, you know, a conservative, ended up ahead of the NRA. You know, he was in that film Soil and Green about overpopulation, about, you know, uh, poverty, inequality, running out of everything. Like, he used his star power to make sure that movie got made because that's what he thought, too. So, I mean, I think dysfunction plays a role, but I think just the what very smart people across the aisle began to believe about the way the world works and was working and not working really did matter. Yeah. Speaking of really smart people, they're working on new technology, John. What do you think about that? Oh, there's, so, there's new technologies popping. Always new technology. So one of the big changes in the past, I mean, like year, it's kind of come to the forefront, but it's been around for a while is the, the whole AI revolution, machine learning, large language models, and especially the ability for us to kind of communicate with machines and for it to seem very humanistic almost space out of the 2001 was as you uh, mentioned in the book like what are your thoughts on that do you, like do you think that's kind of a going to be a big revolutionary technology that's going to help do this upwing 2.0 3.0 or do you think it's more of a flash in the pan that will people will see the dangers of it and they'll shut it down well it's what i've been waiting for my entire life my entire yeah. life been waiting <laughs> for a powerful tool to help create like really like the title of the book, like the sci-fi world, like I imagined. And, you know, it, you know, it's, it's early days and, you know, the, the technology is sort of as bad as it's ever going to be. And tomorrow will be better in the day after that. Well, I mean, that's the truth. Like every, every couple of months, there's a new chat GPT model. That's much, much more powerful. So, and the history of technologies, and maybe this will be more rapid is it takes a while for business to figure out like how to do it, how to mm -hmm. use it. It took them forever to figure out how to really, you know, you know, use electricity for factories. You had to reconfigure the factory floor and that was going to be expensive. And you had one way of doing it. And 
your old employees kind of had a old ones had to kind of like retire before the new ones were you know more amenable. So I don't know how I don't so I, I so the jury is going to be out for a while. Certainly, like the early studies, both experimental and where they've actually uh, used it in businesses, are pretty thrilling. And the most exciting uses uh, will be really to help you know researchers move faster, um, whether that's you know in biology, material science. So, so I don't know, but the fact that uh, just to talk about sort of this generative AI, these large language models like ChatGPT, it was only November, uh, last November that this this was introduced, and you know it it, it didn't take long for people to freak out. Uh, you know, uh, calling for an AI pause. There were some rallies, maybe sparsely attended in some major cities over the weekend, and. I, I think it's, you know, it's not an encouraging sign that we get a brand new technology that may really accelerate progress, health, incomes. And all we can think of it like is, oh, my gosh, this is going to be the Terminator. And maybe it'll only take my job and not kill me, like only taking our jobs. You know, for, for you know, for a lot of people, that's like the positive version of the story. Deciding to kill us or and replace us all with the robot friends—that is the worst version. Well, there. So I, be... am, I mean, I I think in the end, like, you know, uh, you know, I, I like right now. I think we're. I think hopefully we figured out that we need nuclear and sort of this fifty-year pause is an over is over. So maybe in the end, that you know, like what is best will win out. I don't want a fifty-year pause in AI. I think that would be bad. Uh, but no. I certainly worry about delay. Yeah, no, and I think, I mean, you talk a little bit about sort of the environmental regulations and stuff, and um, I, I imagine there'll be kind of a push in some sense to regulate AI, you know, like you talked about, there's a oh push my gosh. for pause. Yeah, already. So I, I think that that's um, going to be incumbent that we don't let that, you know. Uh, there are roughly, people there are experiment. roughly 175 bills right now in Congress about how to regulate AI, create an AI agency. So, uh, you know, they, they are, uh, they, they have it in its sights. The problem, the problem with like, you know, the problem with regulation is nobody in Congress knows what they're doing. Like at the end of the day, it's the staff that does the job and the Congress people, they don't know how to, to articulate it and persuade people onto their side of the aisle. And, and, and from what I've read, it doesn't sound like a lot of them are willing to put in the work to understand the complex issues that they're supposed to regulate, which typically is going to end up with like either overregulated or too underregulated. And I, you know, I think AI is has is great for humanity if used in the right way. You know, every every tool can be a weapon, right? But we got to believe in ourselves and we got to believe in our fellow man if we want to be able to progress society. And I think that, you know, an AI tool that could help us do pretty much anything. And you know, if we want to get to the next planet and the next planet like the idea that human beings can solve the human problem of suffering is it, it can't be done. But what we can do is make the suffering a little bit less by creating more opportunities, right? And by we can create more, more opportunities in the marketplace. We can create more opportunities with life by being able to become an interplanetary species. I think that should be a goal of ours, you know. Um, and nuclear, a new energy source combined with AI technology, that can help us actually achieve those dreams. And just all of us kind of working in that direction is really enough to get us there over time. Well, that's the big dream. Like, that's the big vision. Um, I mean, you were, you know, 
what will be the role of our of our of our government? So I th- certainly there's a feeling out there among some in Congress that they missed the boat on the internet and social media, and but they're not going to miss the boat on this one. So they're going to make more of an effort to want to understand the technology. There are actually like lots of sort of these like briefings going on on Capitol Hill to try to really get up the speed. So there's not these embarrassing hearings uh, when they were uh, quizzing the various social media CEOs when it, it's like clear they had very little idea of what of what to ask other than what was on their cards. Uh, that, so I think there is going to be more of an more of effort to understand and to regulate. But just think about it. And, and this is this is certainly true among some people at the like the like the Federal Trade Commission who think that the light regulation of the Internet the decision to not create like the internet regulatory agency in 19 like 98 like that was a mistake like well, that, yeah, we I mean, should have really gotten a better handle on it and let me tell you something if that has what we would have done decide to really you know heavily regulate lock down the internet um you know maybe every new website would have to be licensed uh, you know i don't know we would not be having this discussion about AI today. We would probably not be having a discussion about a lot of new technologies because the ability for people to research and collaborate via the internet is, is exactly why we are even having this debate today about these new technologies. We would not have them. And I guess we wouldn't have to worry about regulating them because they wouldn't exist. Yeah. Isn't it so great that they missed the boat for the internet? I mean, like I, as you're talking about them trying to get more. It's in, almost a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> there you know the fact that they missed it that they didn't regulate it is, is still phenomenal like the fact that there is so little sort of outside control and it's a lot of experimenting and a lot of change i mean um <clears throat> the, the what has changed in the past 20 years i i like to tell the story that my first job out of college didn't exist when i graduated from high school because i was building iphone apps like and i graduated right before from high school right before the iphone came out and then i started making iphone apps when i graduated from high school like that's a three-year te- three-year period where a lot of things change, and I, I think the the smartphone has had a tremendous impact on society. Some great things, some some definitely some negativities with how easy it is for kids to sit on social media all day. But I think in general, and I mean like that, and that's a problem. If honestly, like that's a regulation that would probably you know we've realized that that's a danger, and we can go and fix that. Like I work at a school, and we've kind of decided like let's not put the phones in the kids' hands during the school day. Let's put it away. If you don't need it, if you're in middle school and if you're in high school, it was, um, submit it at the beginning of the day and then get it at the end. Like there are ways to fix that without having to like throw the whole baby uh, out with the bathwater say no no smartphones at all like it's a tremendous tool and i think like that's the kind of attitude that's going to benefit all of us um you know and i think like nuclear is one of those examples too where it in one sense you can you can uh build a bomb and destroy a whole neighborhood or in the other sense you could power a whole neighborhood you could power a whole city um so it's just a matter of like there's the technological technological aspect and then there's how do you apply that and how do you uh, work to make things better with that that uh, technology? And I think AI is going to be the same thing. It's a tool there's and no how doubt, do we right? apply it? There, I mean, there's no doubt there will be problems and there will be unforeseen problems. Mm-hmm. Always are. Always are. And what do we do? You know, we, we fix them. We create a new technology to fix that problem. And maybe that new technology will have a problem. You know, and there's like this, this back and forth. But the back and forth, it doesn't mean we just stay where we are. We keep moving forward and uh, you know it, it seems to me like such an obvious lesson that 
I mean, my God, I mean, we're sitting here having these, uh, you know, debates about climate change and some people saying, you know, we need to like, you know, live poorer lives when how we decided not only to fully embrace nuclear energy a half century ago, but then 50 years of improving the technology, where would we, we probably already would have these commercial fusion reactors from mm -hmm. coast to coast. And I mean, I'm sure there'd be, I'm sure there'd still be problems in the United States and things we would debate about, uh, but this wouldn't be one of them. And, you know, and the fact that this is supposed to be like the defining issue of the 21st century the defining problem, and if we don't all die from the heat exhaustion, we'll it will just get by by the skin of our teeth. Well, you know, not having that debate would be pretty great, and would be worth a lot. And we decide, and but we decided to go a different direction. Uh, you know, over, you know, you know, really scary stories and emotion. Uh, and, and this is the fix we're in. I don't want to repeat the story for AI. I feel like, I feel like my whole life has been moving to this point to fight. Now I got to fight, to fight. I wasn't, I wasn't old enough to fight about nuclear energy, but I can fight about, you know, AI and I can fight about, uh, the value of us becoming an orbital economy and a space faring civilization. I, I'm ready to fight these fights, even though I missed the other ones. So that that leads me right into my next question, actually. Uh, in the book, it's very clear. I mean, I mean, fight from my keyboard, of course. Yeah, no, I know. So, actually, you, know so, you know, no, I don't actually have to leave this office. But anyway. the, uh, in the book, it's very obvious that you have read or watched a lot of sci-fi. I might, I consider myself a sci-fi nerd. I've read or watched almost every book that you've referenced in the in this book. And I'm just Excellent. curious, what technology from your like sci-fi entertainment world do you want to see made reality in our future? Like, what do we not have now that's written about that you want to see 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever it is in the future of humanity, what do you want to see us do? Yeah, listen, yeah, I, I absolutely thought that, that, you know, that we would be, that, we would be humans would lots of humans thousands million would be in orbit on the moon on mars that that i that's that that would have been shocking that we are not that that we get excited I th and i think currently the there are we have the most people off planet that we that we've ever had and it's like a dozen uh or something uh that you know the ability to do that and sustain a human presence off planet uh, I, I mean, I think I, you know, I, I in the book, I, I think there's, I think there's an economic case. I think more important, there's a, there's a human, you know, survivability case uh, for doing that. Um, I really do agree with Elon Musk when he says, like, that's important. Like, so far, this is the only place we've discovered that we have intelligent life. Uh, you know, we don't want to risk that by a giant piece of ice smacking into the planet. Right. And I mean, it was, I, I don't know if you recall the. Um, the uh, the meteorite that 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 crashed in uh, Russia like five maybe six years ago, it, it was very well documented because they all have dashboard cams, and I mean that wasn't that big that like came out of nowhere and you know we just we didn't really track it we couldn't have stopped it and right now if something big is headed toward Earth NASA has been doing some experiments we couldn't. We, we couldn't stop it any more than they could have stopped it when they first discovered Halley's Comet. Yeah. Uh, like, 
that needs to change. And there's other things too that can happen. So I think, you know, in the book, I talk a lot about this futurist named Herman Kahn, uh, who went from nuclear war theorists in the 60s, the sunny futurists in the 70s. And he talked about humanity mastering the solar system, certainly by certainly by this point. Uh, and right now we have 12 people in orbit, so we got a ways to go. Yeah. Have you ever have you watched the show? Um, I think it's on Apple TV. Um, um, I'm spacing on the name, but they basically they replay the space race like we didn't quit. We just kept going. And yes. Yeah. For all mankind. For all mankind, My yeah. Gosh, that that, that uh, you know, uh, for all mankind, that's like one of the that, that is a fantastic example. That really, <laughs> I mean, really gets a lot. Of, and, I've, and I've actually interviewed the creator Ronald D. Moore uh, for my uh, uh, newsletter, and that really does run an, a fascinating history of where we just we lost the space race, but we we kept racing. Right. That's right. He's kept racing. And, you know, by the 80s, we had nuclear fusion and permanent bases in the 90s. And now the new up, the, the new season, season four is coming out uh, in November. And uh, it, it, I love alternate history. And that's a, I think, a really like well thought out world building. Yeah. Uh, especially for television about that, like everything would have been accelerated. And, uh, you know, and, Instead, we're sitting here still figuring out whether we should build big light water reactors and 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 all that. When we should be thinking about like what the next what nuclear fusion 5.0 looks like. Yeah, and it, um, I think on the new season or season three, they had uh they had a new element or or not uh, like a new um uh, something that they they were mining on the moon and then bring like a new energy source and that helped them go even further, right? And it's like yeah, I think I, I think they were I think they were trying to like mine some helium three or helium three. Or, 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 or something. Uh, yeah. yeah, like, you know, this isn't just about national prestige, right? So people say, you know, we spent a lot of money to put a flag on the moon. It isn't just about, I mean, partly about that. I think it's partly about aspiration, but there's an economic case. I think, I think there's a human existential case for doing it. And to say like, boy, if we didn't do it, you know, school lunches would be better uh you know what we're a rich country we can do both <laughs> well we can't do both when we can all have we have lunchables at, we can have lunchables at school and we can have a multi-planetary civilization we can do both i would argue the multi-planetary civilization would make lunchables at school more accessible for everybody I think that's a fantastic theory, and I, I don't think you even have to support it. I think it's obviously, <laughs> obviously true. Get some space ice cream with all that too. So that's like that's like on the jet, space ice cream. That's perfect, right? Oh man, do you watch? Do you still watch the Jetsons? Because I so I have twin six year olds, and I I it's on HBO, and I like to watch. I only let them watch like old stuff that I've already seen. We don't watch new stuff. And I turned on the Jetsons the other day, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot how great the show was. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I rewatched some episodes in the, in the process of writing uh, this book. And, you know, what's interesting is that the people who made the Jetsons, they didn't think this was like, I mean, granted, some things are exaggerated and it's not, you know, it, it, and everything is not like, like super hard science. But they thought broadly, like this was all very possible, that this they were only building on what scientists and technologists at the time were, was, was saying could happen and that I mean, that is also that is really true is that it wasn't just like 
the the sci-fi slash public intellectuals of the time, like Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, or or some movie makers or cartoon makers who were saying were saying this, like think tankers and CEOs and government officials thought like this was they were experiencing in the 60s. And and as I say, and in the book again, really in the 90s, like an amazing moment where humanity was going to like really take off. And you know, it was going to be full speed of head full speed ahead. Uh, and then it didn't happen. And that there was a and that didn't and it, it was it was shocking when it didn't happen in the early 70s. It was shocking when the late 90s boom didn't turn into a forever boom, as plenty as certainly a lot of people on Wall Street thought. Uh, and you know, folks at Wired Magazine also thought, which I wrote, I write a little bit about. Uh, so this is like, you know, like the third, the third bite the apple here. We had like sort of the 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 50s and late 60s, and he had these kind of late 90s, and now here we are again. So like this is like a precious flame of progress I, that I do not want to go out. I want to see it get bigger and brighter and turn to a bonfire of progress. And I think that, you know, I think there's a role for, you know, I, I think there's a role for public policy here. But, you know, I think as a society, we have to at some level believe that like, it'll be worth it, right? That like, we can do it. And it won't just mean job loss. And it won't just mean inequality that like, it will be a a future that like they would want to live in and that they would want for their kids. And I'm not sure we have a lot of those images. So to get back to your point, I think like science fiction, that could, at least some science fiction that can create those images is actually important. Is that the appeal then? I mean, you're fighting emotion, the sort of like, oh, AI is going to steal our jobs or big robots are going to come. I mean, like those Boston dynamic videos or the dogs that open the doors, yeah. like that, those are, that's amazing technology. But then you can, you can also tell the story that they're just going to come murder you in your, in your sleep. Like, murder bots. All yeah. Murder like, bots. Like, what is the... What is that emotional story that we tell? Is it just that we this is our opportunity for to 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 rebuild the American dream, or is it is it bigger than that? Well, uh, for for like on the emotion part, like you know, we had the uh, you know I read about the the uh, the Fukushima nuclear meltdown, which mm -hmm. twenty eleven, where Japan then decided to shut down all the reactors, turned out to be a disastrous idea. Far more people died from like the cold and the heat and high energy prices than ever died. Like, like no one really died. The reactor was really the uh, the evacuation, uh, and then they now they decided to restart the reactors. And there's a great paper, and like, why did they do that? It was emotion, right? People like got freaked out, and they made and they made decisions in an emotional state of mind that they now had to reverse ten years later. So like, emotion like that matters, and people seeing the uh boston dynamics videos i see them i'm like i think that's cool i think a lot again a lot of other people think those are those dogs are going to become murder dogs and hunt us down i think there's a black mirror episode like that so i think we have a, and we have a natural inclination toward like caution and risk aversion and valuing you know uh valuing like lo losses are more painful than gains it's like this behavioral psychology so yeah, I think it is important that we are able to conceptualize something beyond dystopia and the apocalypse and Armageddon. Uh, I think, and, I, and so yeah, I think our culture plays a huge role in that. Um, yeah, we need more shows like For All Mankind. Um, but it, but you know, I don't know. Maybe 
rather than wait for Hollywood to do it, maybe there, there are enough new AI tools that even an idiot like me can create cool futuristic images and I, you know, and, and and even create like start creating like all you know AI created films and people who do, do who are sort of pro progress can start to create the media that Hollywood too often does not and sort of rarely does. Well, you know, what I found through like, I don't know, just kind of reading history, whether it's like governmental or like corporate, corporate, right? So it's outside of the government, but they, it's kind of like a government um, is what tends to, you know, stop progress is when people that have the power don't want to let it go, right? It's like new money versus old money. And it's like the way that it is, is good. You'll be happy this way because we're making money and they kind of want to hold that until, and I think like the way to break that cycle is to open up opportunity, you know, let more voices be heard, have more people involved in the progress. I mean, ultimately, if you want to get something big done, you need a lot of humanity helping out. Or if we're thinking of it as like the United States, we need a lot of our, our citizens participating. So that brings me to my next question. What do you think about uncapping the house and letting more citizens have power <laughs> and like actually like having a say of what goes on in our government? Uh, how how do you do you want it to look like the uh, uh, the uh, the Senate of the old Republican Star Wars? <laughs> no, like, no, no, no. Like ten thousand, they have to fly. No. How big are you saying? I, so I I would say that's a magic number, right? The first there is a magic number and it's not 435. I can tell you that I, I, I my first proposal would be you uncap the house with a goal to expand it to 870 by 2030. Right. And this has to take place over time. But we have that time to do it, to plan it out, to rewrite districts. I think you get more people in there. The, uh, the the Congress is overwhelmed. I mean, there's literally books written about it over and over again. This There's not enough staff. There's not enough uh, congressional people to oversee the executive branch. The executive branch is massive, right? It's just, and Congress is supposed to be equal to them, and they're just not in so many different ways. And I think this would be the first step of, you know, kind of rebalancing power, allowing more people a say in what happens in our government. And ultimately, I think that's where you're going to get that, you know, move forward because the economy is going to drive better, which means there's yeah. going to be more opportunities for people to start new businesses, to experiment on these things. And I think people will just be happier overall because of that. Yeah, listen, I I mean, I can't say that I've, done, I've, I've given a ton of thought, uh, but I don't think like given that we, you know, gone from 3 million to 300 million that we can't think hard about like how, you know, how big our legislature is i think that's totally fine to consider that uh i think i, I certainly some people would say well uh, you know if congress if congress has too much to do let's take a few things off their plate i'm sure that there's also you could say that but you know we, it's a big complicated country there's going to be a lot to do we're, we're we're the superpower on the technological frontier it's busy uh having more i think having you know, perhaps having you know more people, more brain power to think about these issues and be able to cut them up into some more digestible chunks isn't a terrible idea. I mean, ultimately, if you're going to say, well, let's take power away from Congress, Congress has done that on their own, right? And they've and some of it's been the executive as well. Well, where does the power end up? It ends up in the executive, right? So, like the 
power is the people's hands or the Congress is the people's power and the executive is the government power. And like, if you're an individual citizen, why are you trying to give away your power? You know, like just live up to the responsibilities and, you know, do the job we're supposed to do. <laughs> no, I think those are great points. All right. John, so, do you agree with that? Oh, you- I'm, I'm all in favor of own cabinet right. at this point. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure this is a well-discussed issue between you two. Yes. This is all we talk about, you know, <laughs> besides I want to fold space too. So like my thing is like, I'm pretty sure that Eisenhoff was on to something there. And I, th- I think folding space is doable. I don't know how to do it. One day I'll read uh, some math books and figure it out, but <laughs> right, it's all linear algebra. You just gotta, you know, get to matrices and eigenvectors, eigenvalues. It's things just like math. Just math. Which, which ironically, math. that's what AI is. It's, it's the same statistics. Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned you work, uh, you work at AI, you're think tinker, you wrote this book, like, what are you trying to like, you're an upwing thinker. What do you, your legacy when you, when people think about you in the future, what do you want to leave them with? That after half century and pretty much all my life, uh, I think people not giving up like a dream of what tomorrow could be that I played a small incremental role in highlighting how it could be different. I sometimes I think it's just important to say like, Hey, like it's possible. Like we, we can do it. Uh, you know, that to create, you know, tell the book, create the, that, that to create the sci-fi where we promised that's not science fiction. Like we can do it. We have the tools to do it. We've chosen not to do it but we can we can make a different decision and it, you know and, and and i hope about like sometimes you just need like the opportunity and i'm hoping that like given the pandemic and competition with china and like the emergence of this cluster of technologies from ai to you know these spacex rockets to mnrna vaccines and crispr and what we see happening with with nuclear and deep thermal, deep geothermal, that there's this cluster of technologies at a time that maybe people are thinking harder uh, about like what we can do as a country to be to become more technologically advanced, whether it's due to global competition or what have you. That maybe now is like the the, the time, like when the, when the global financial crisis like happened. Like if you if your whole life you've been working like on how to bail out banks or something like that, like. No one cared, and then all of a sudden they really cared. And if you had that, if you could pull that off the shelf, it doesn't <laughs> matter if, it, if, if under normal circumstances people would call it a liberal plan, a conservative plan. Like they wanted a plan, as Timothy Geithner, the former Treasury Secretary, said, "Plan beats no plan." And in those moments, plan beats no plan. And I'm hoping that right now, like I'm going to give like you know a plan, a map, something that for that if people want to go that direction I, I i can provide some sort of guidance and that it's possible and and how to do it so i think i think i think there's like a thirst and a hunger out there for something besides you know just you know pure nostalgia or giving up or thinking that tomorrow's worse so how are we all going to survive no it's good I to hope. be reminded. it's definitely good to be reminded that that things are possible and i think that's what this book does and that's why i appreciate it as i've been reading it like the it just gets you thinking again. It, it reminds you like this is what people were thinking, and we can get back to that that positive looking for opportunities in, in all of life. 
Yeah, I, I agree. So. I mean, it, it inspired me. Like, I mean, and I think, I think you're right. I think people out there want it. I just, I, you know, it's supply and demand. And I think entertainment and government has been supplying us with like horror movies and, you know, uh, attack ads for years. And the American people are just fed up with it. And they're looking for something like this. They're looking for uh, the rewrite of history of For All Mankind. They're looking for uh, a book that lays out a plan of how they can achieve their dreams as opposed to tell them that they're bad for believing what they believe, you know? Um, so I, I really appreciate you writing the book, uh, honestly. I think, you know, that that could be one of those things. The downshift took a lot of things away, but at the same time, it gave you the opportunity to write something like this, maybe make a mark and inspire more people to uh, to have an upwing type of philosophy of life. Well, let's we, uh, hopefully... Uh... You know, before we can get two people to think like that, we need to get one person. Now, hopefully I got two. Now I can get two more. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Podcast by podcast. That's right. That's all you can do, right? One right. person at a time. That's right. Well, I appreciate you joining us today, James. Um, you can, uh, where where would you recommend people pick up the book at? Oh, gosh. It's, it's, ever, it's some, amazingly, it's everywhere. Uh, you know, it's, <laughs> uh, you know, your Amazons, your, your Barnes and Nobles. We got it. It's it, we have a, it's a Kindle, it's a hardcover, it's an audio book. Uh, somehow somehow I got a major book publisher to back this thing, so it's anywhere you can find a book, it's there. Yeah, particularly I'm a big fan of the artwork on the front. I thought that I don't know did you did you have a part of that or did you have a partner that helped you out with that? Uh, that artwork. Uh, uh, they rejected all my ideas. They decided to go with the professionals. It turns okay. out I like that artwork. Uh, I I. It reminds me of the crystals in uh, Superman from 1978, where he put the crystals and then things started building the fortress of solitude. So I, I view those like those crystals that they will that they will they will build a better world. That's right. I love or something. It. Okay. It, it, when I saw it, I mean, it, I was drawn to it because it has it feels very like it feels very retro and futuristic all at once. And I think that's kind of what your book is: a little bit of history, a little bit of future some economics thrown in. It's it's wonderful. If you haven't read it, go out, buy it at one of those wonderful uh, locations, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, and uh, and read it. It's everywhere. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thanks, for, thanks for coming on, James. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for our guest, James, uh, author of The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised. Uh, for coming on the show today. It was a wonderful conversation. Um, John, as always, thank you. And to our audience, remember to like, share, and subscribe. Peace and love.